I'm reading from Corinthians 10, 13 to 22. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices particip participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. It probably goes without saying that some sermons are much harder than others and take a lot more sort of effort to kind of get into the space where I think we need to be in order to hear the word of the Lord. This is one of those. Um, it's one that's been rattling around in my head for a couple of years now. And as I contemplated, where do you fit that in? Well, we have a life focus on one Sunday a year, but that has not been the best time. And then I realized I think the best place to focus in on the demonic nature of what's happening in the world today is in this series on our ancient foe. Um, I want to point out, because I won't be do, doing this in the sermon, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 um, is very often quoted out of context. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man, God is faithful, and he will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And that's often just applied to temptation generally, whatever temptation we may be facing. But even though I'm not going to be expounding 1 Corinthians 10 verse by verse, it's worth noting that the first 12 verses are about idolatry. And after verse 13, verses 14 to the end of the chapter are about idolatry. And given the context, verse 13 would fit into that same understanding that, that Paul's building through the whole chapter. So there's a connection between 13 and 14. That's why I asked Bill to read both of them. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. I'll probably be quoting this from about three different versions. I've memorized this so many times. And God is faithful, and he will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, beloved brothers, flee from idolatry. Connect the escape that God promises in verse 13 to that fleeing 
that Paul calls us to do in verse 14. When we find ourselves in trouble and we realize that this is not something that we can withstand, it's time to flee, when we flee, we look for the way of escape. When you're sitting here in the sanctuary and God willing, this will never happen, but if the fire alarms started to go, we should assume that it's probably not a struggle that we want to take on in ourselves, and we should flee, look for the way of escape. By the way, the exits are here, 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 and out there. Sorry. And that's, that's what Paul's doing. So I just want to mention that in context of this reading, because like I said, I'm not going to kind of expound this chapter in the way that I might ordinarily do, the way that I have, the way that I might do at some point in the future. But I want to begin with this. And I will just say that I stole this bit from Lara Clausen, who is the founder and director of Choice for Two. Um, the video that we're going to be watching this evening in the Bible study is a presentation that she makes. And she starts that video in the same way that I'm starting this sermon. How many of you here believe that human life begins at conception. You don't have to put up your hand, but if you do, that's okay. And I hope that we all believe that human life begins at conception. I'm just gonna give a little plug here. If you don't, or if you have questions about that, come back during Advent. We'll be doing a series on John chapter one, and I hope in one of those sermons that if you came through the door not believing, that human life begins at conception, you will walk out the door having changed your mind and realized that indeed it does. But think about your answer. Does human life begin at conception? We're going to uh, come back to this near the end, but for now, just remember that answer. Going back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 5, in that passage, God instructed Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. So say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. Now, of course, our text this morning exhorted us, and far more succinctly, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, it stands to reason that Paul would not have been inspired to include that in his letter to the Corinthians if this wasn't an issue with them. If there was no temptation towards idolatry, he wouldn't have had to write it. But he has to write it, because he's just been talking about it. He's been talking about how prevalent idolatry has been among the people of God. And he's saying, no temptation, including that one, has taken you. That is not common to all. So look for that way of escape. Flee from idolatry. 
Now we've seen it in the Old and the New Testaments, and we know that idolatry has never been pleasing to God. It was wrong, it is wrong, it will always be wrong. It will always be sin. That's why it was number one in that list of Ten Commandments that God gave to his people at Sinai when he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The Heidelberg Catechism 2 on Lord's Day 34 asks about this. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? And we are taught to respond, this is a little bit older version than you would find in the Gray Hymnal, that I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints or any other creatures, and learn rightly to know the only true God, trust in him alone with humility and patience, submit to him, expect all good things from him only, love, fear, and glorify him with my whole heart, so that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least thing contrary to his will. When it comes to idolatry, we're very quick to offer up excuses. We're very quick to say, well, that's not idolatry, it's just art. We don't bow down to worship it, therefore it's okay that we have done this thing. But we need to be really careful with this. Scripture, all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, would have us come to the conclusion that we need to err on God's side if we're going to err at all in this matter. That we need to be sure that there's not even a hint of idolatry in the things that we do, the ways that we practice our faith. We need to be sure, even more than that, that it's not just about us, because maybe there are things that we can do in all innocence. That's kind of where Paul goes in 1 Corinthians. He talks about food offered to idols. But that if we were to do them, would confuse the nature of salvation by grace through faith to others and lead them astray from the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. So idolatry is serious business. And as I said, we know that it has never been pleasing or acceptable in any way to God, and no wonder. Because as the Apostle Paul wrote in verses 20 and 21 of our text this morning, what the pagans sacrifice, what is offered to an idol, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So it seems clear enough then, idolatry is a pretty serious thing. But if you're wondering what made the worship of Molech worthy of particular attention, and the kind of particular attention that it received in Leviticus chapter 20, the answer is found in the very specific nature of that Canaanite idolatry. 
Leviticus 20, verse 2 said, any one of the people of Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. But another phrase is used in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10, where we read that King Josiah of Judah defiled Topheth in a good way, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Molech. Other translations use the phrase that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Molech. So as you've been reading through the Old Testament, depending on which version you're using, you've encountered some of these phrases, and whenever you see that phrase, pass through the fire, or offer your child to Molech, or burn your son and daughter as an offering to Molech, this is what it's talking about. It was talking about this practice of offering a living child to be burned alive as a sacrifice to a demonic pagan idol. The worship of Molech, which the text from Leviticus talked about, and which our text in 1 Corinthians makes clear, was really the worship of demons, let me say this again, involved taking a living, breathing baby, your own offspring, and throwing it into a furnace to be burned alive. Now, as horrifying as that is, at least I hope, that we are all sufficiently horrified at the thought. It was not an uncommon practice in the ancient world. Many idols, many demons have been worshipped down through the centuries with offerings of human sacrifice, and often those human sacrifices involved children. Just in the last year or two, it's hard to keep track during this time, um, archaeologists have found yet another Aztec burial pit where the bodies of little children and, and young teens were cast after they were sacrificed, and the nature of the sacrifice was their, their chests were cut open and their hearts were pulled from their chest and held up to the sun god as an offering to secure the favor of that God. This has been going on down through human history. And by the way, I said this, I think, just last week, but if I can be allowed another brief excursus here, you might want to remember that and point it out to the next person who tries to tell you that all religions lead to the same God. They don't. Period. Not all religions lead to the same God. Not all faiths, regardless of how sincere the person practicing that faith may be, are going to end with the salvation of the people who practice it. Now we would like to think that the prohibition that I read just a few moments ago would be a true no-brainer for the people of God, really having been told from the beginning that they should not make graven images or worship any god other than the one true God, it would seem that it could go without saying that throwing a baby into the burning barrel to honor some demon or other would be an epically bad idea. The thing is, 
We want to think that. But that's not how it panned out. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. When Solomon, yes, that Solomon, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Then verse 7, then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech. Yes, that Molech. The abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And we've seen already this morning what those sacrifices would have involved. And not only Solomon with all of his wives, but also Ahaz, and after him Manasseh, are specifically mentioned and implicated as having participated in this very same abominable idolatry. And in Jeremiah 32, this is mentioned as the evil of both the children of Israel and the children of Judah. It was prevalent throughout the land, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Every time we read of a revival or a reformation taking place under one of the good kings of Judah, one of the things they're doing is defiling the idols to Molech and Chemosh and other foreign pagan gods to try to keep people from going back to that worship. So while... The slaughter of the innocents is a phrase that's usually reserved for the murder by King Herod's soldiers of all the boys between the years of zero and two in the region of Bethlehem after the wise men came to him. I've used it for the title of the sermon this morning because in reality the slaughter of the innocents is something that has been going on from time immemorial. And this should not surprise us at all. What the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. And according to Jesus, our ancient foe, Satan, the prince of demons, was a murderer from the beginning. That's been his MO since the Garden of Eden. Also, Hebrews chapter 2 describes him as the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Satan may disguise himself as an angel of light, and he may do it quite effectively, as we noted last Lord's Day, but his domain ultimately is the domain of darkness, and he delights in death. I'm not going to get too preachy about this. I'm, I'm a little wishy-washy on it, to be honest, but that might be something that we need to keep in mind when we get to that celebration of Halloween might be one of those areas where we have to ask ourselves if our innocent observance of something that is not by any means innocent in the long run is something that we ought to think about. I will leave it at that. Because the domain of darkness is the domain of Satan, and he delights in death. It's what he does. And not just death, the writer of the Hebrews goes on to tell us that through the fear of death, he holds people captive to lifelong slavery. Satan delights in death, and he uses the fear of death in us 
to hold us in bondage. And given the nature of our times, I think that that's a particularly salient point, but it needs a whole other sermon. So we'll consider that more next week as we wrap up this series, if the Lord is willing. The thing is, when we think about idolatry, I think most often we think of some poor benighted pagan somewhere in a jungle who carves an image from a block of wood or stone and then falls down at its feet to worship and offer sacrifice. Or maybe we think of some of the things that we've seen in in movies. Some ancient pharaoh or king worshiping before a golden altar, maybe even offering the blood of his slaves as the Aztecs did, or the blood of his children in the hope of obtaining prosperity or success in some endeavor. And we need to remember that's really what idolatry is about. It's not the individual worshiping the block of wood or stone or the pagan idol or whatever it may be because they feel there is something intrinsically valuable in that block of wood or stone that is worthy of worship. People worship idols for what they think they can get from the idol. People have always wanted the very same things. We want safety, security, prosperity, comfort. We want good crops. We want the rain to fall when we want the rain. And we want the sun to shine when we want the sun. And people worshipped idols. They worshipped these pagan deities to try to get those things from those deities And I think it's important, I'll come back to it in a little bit, that really the essence of idolatry is not worshiping something outside of ourselves, it's worshiping ourselves. So we think of it in those terms. But how about this? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and and Baal and Moloch and Zeus and Thor. There's a fun one. We've had a whole series of movies pushing Norse mythology towards our young people and young adults. And many have kind of gotten caught up in it without realizing what a truly horrific kind of worship that was. The people who worshipped Thor, they, they almost had something on the people who worshipped Molech. Not all religions lead to God. Or maybe Quetzalcoatl. You cannot serve God and Quetzalcoatl. Now, certainly any of those statements would be true. But what Jesus actually said, and you all know this, you cannot serve God and money. Kind of like the old one, cannot serve God and mammon, because that was a little ambiguous. I didn't always know what mammon was. So it's kind of easier to let myself off the hook. And then these new translations come along and say, you cannot serve God and money. Now consider that alongside Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, where we are instructed, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
See, we tend to think of idolatry as an ancient evil, something that we have long since left behind in the dustbin of history, the same way, really, that we think of child sacrifice. That was then. But if we understand that covetousness is idolatry, does that put a different light on idolatry? I think if we grasp the fact that covetousness, the longing to possess for ourselves that which we envy in someone else's life, that's the very essence of idolatry. And I think if we could just grasp that, we might wake up one day to the reality that it's quite possible that we live right now in one of the most idolatrous ages that has ever been. Because covetousness is idolatry, according to the scripture, but according to the spirit of the age, covetousness, the desire to possess things, is a virtue. And when people worship idols, when people are covetous, they worship demons and not God. That being the case, I wonder if we've really left child sacrifice behind either. Of course, we would never, never call it child sacrifice. Not anymore. Not in this enlightened age. No one today would ever dream of tossing a baby into a fire in the hope of increased prosperity, would they? Surely not. But as Laura Clausen of Choice for Two has said, throughout history, children have been sacrificed to a variety of deities in attempts to gain favor or blessings. Aztecs cut their children's hearts out to appease the gods of rain and war. Incas sacrificed their children to the sun god so that their crops would flourish. Sometimes that involved killing them like the Aztecs did. Sometimes, and we have some lovely mummies to prove this, what the Incas did was take young children up to the top of a mountain and just bind them and leave them there to die of starvation and exposure to try to obtain from the gods some kind of blessing. Canaanites sacrifice their infants to Molech for prosperity. She goes on, there's nothing new under the sun. We sacrifice our children today, not for rain or war victories, but for freedom or convenience. We sacrifice to gain favor in the workplace or for the blessings of money or fame. We sacrifice our babies on the altar of free sex. But child sacrifice, she says, is no longer a public event. It's done behind closed doors. Rather than a gory burning or a bloody stabbing, it's become a neat, sterile, and clinical event. The video that I hope some of you will come to see this evening is going to put even more light on that. And at one point in the video, she's going to say, if you're squeamish, you might want to turn away. But I think that's the problem. We've been squeamish, and we've been turning away, 
and we've been closing our ears and our eyes to the truth of what's been happening for far too long. This number, for instance, kind of a troubling number, isn't it? That's since January 1, 2021. This year, so far, that's what that is. We call it choice. We call it empowerment. And our culture condones it. We celebrate it. We celebrate baby murder. And this has become an in increasingly a thing online, on social media. We are seeing now television stars, movie stars, musicians, all kinds of celebrities stepping forward to say, I had an abortion. Not only am I proud of it, it was the best thing that I ever did in my life. Stevie Nicks, not too long ago, the lead singer from Fleetwood Mac, made a statement like that. She found herself pregnant, and she knew that if she carried that baby to term, it was going to have an impact on her career. And she is so happy that she went ahead and had that abortion because if she had not the, the world, we, we would have been deprived of her music, perhaps. So she celebrates, and so many others do as well, their abortion. We celebrate baby murder. Does that seem harsh? G.K. Chesterton once said, nine, nine times out of ten, the coarse word is the word that condemns an evil, and the refined word, the polite word, the euphemism, is the word that excuses it. Maybe that's why we don't even talk about abortion anymore. We just call it choice. We call it reproductive freedom. We call it women's health care. That sounds ever so much better, doesn't it? Never mind that the woman who goes into the clinic, there's about a 50-50 chance that there's another woman that she's carrying in her womb, and the health care that that second woman is going to receive is not going to be particularly pleasant. But we call it health care because we couldn't have the government funding and defending the right to child murder, could we? It's harsh. It's coarse, but let me bring you back to where we started for just a minute. At the beginning of the sermon, I asked the question, how many here believe that human life begins at conception? And I hope that everyone here shares that value, if it's true, and it is, it is absolutely true, then abortion is the crime of deliberately killing a person, which is the very definition of murder. Now, I know that the government says that the baby is not a person, and therefore abortion is not murder. The government says that this is noble and good and a right that we need to defend and we need to fund and we need to promote. And never mind the government, this week I came across an article with the title, I kid you not, I'm a Christian minister and mother of two and I've had two abortions. Here's how faith informed those decisions. The author, the Reverend Dr. Rebecca Todd Peters, is not only a Christian, and I would put that in scare quotes, 
She is also professor of religious studies and a director of poverty and social justice program at Elon University. She writes, quote, in a world where the dominant Christian voices insist that abortion is morally wrong, it is time for those Christians who believe otherwise to say loudly and clearly, and I'm quoting her, that abortion can be a moral good. This Presbyterian pastor writing in USA Today, abortion can be a moral good. Talk about deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. I'm reminded of Isaiah 5 verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. If life begins a conception, and it does, it absolutely does, then abortion, the deliberate killing of a human person by whatever means, and trust me, it is never pretty. It's murder. Our government says today that it is not. Our government today says that every woman has the right to mutilate and kill a child that she is carrying and to think of it as health, health care. The false apostles of false and faithless churches echo those sentiments claiming that abortion can be a moral good. They are wrong. Our government is wrong. And our government needs to reverse its position on this or we need a new government. As C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, we all want progress. But progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, it's one of the most brilliant quotes C.S. Lewis ever wrote, if you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. We call that repentance in Christianity. Progress means turning back and walking back to the right road, and in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. You shall not murder is another one of those ten basic fundamental commandments that God gave to his people at the same time that he said, you shall have no other gods before me. And so I want to wrap this up this morning, bringing these two things together. You shall not murder, and you shall have no other gods before me. First then, murder committed to appease a false god has been known throughout history as sacrifice. Second premise, covetousness is idolatry. And the false god of that idolatry is the self. When we covet, we make gods of ourselves, believing ourselves to be entitled to what the sovereign God has not given us. So when a baby is killed simply because his or her mother doesn't want the inconvenience of carrying her child to delivery. That is a sacrifice to the idol of self. And we need to call it for what it is. In the video tonight, 
Laura will talk about how they interact with people who come to them talking, thinking, preparing to have abortions, and how most of the reasons that are given she finds horrifying. One that she cites in particular is a woman who came in and said, well, yeah, I really want to be a mom. I, I want to have a baby, but I'm going on vacation in a couple of weeks. I don't want to be pregnant during the vacation. So I'm thinking I'll just get an abortion now, and then when I get back from the vacation, I'll just work on getting pregnant again. These kinds of attitudes. When a baby is killed for those kinds of reasons, it's a sacrifice to the idol of self. We need to call it for what it is, and we need to do that so that those who are guilty in this matter, please bear with me, can find grace, forgiveness, and true peace by turning in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because calling sin, sin. That's what God's law does, by the way. And calling sin, sin is not a word of condemnation, not at all. It is a word of grace. If we don't call sin, sin, we don't give sinners the opportunity to repent and turn to Christ. If we don't call sin, sin, we ourselves don't have the opportunity to repent and turn to Christ. This is a word of grace, and that's good, because in this matter, it is not just those people who have gone out and obtained abortions that are guilty, and I can't say this enough. We are all guilty. All of us. Every time that someone said, if you're squeamish, you might want to look away, and we've looked away. Every time someone said, wow, 37 million, 18, 19, 20, and we thought, well, it's not my affair. I'm not involved in that. We are guilty. If life begins a conception, and it absolutely does, then so far this year alone, since January 1st, over 37 million, you have the number in front of you, 37 million children. And you know what? If life begins a conception, we need to stop with the insipid adjectives unborn or preborn. That doesn't matter. If life begins a conception, those babies are children from the moment they are conceived until the end of their lives. Over 37 million children this year. To give that a little bit of perspective, we just this past week celebrated Remembrance Day, and that's a good thing to do. Totally support it. We do that because during all of the years of World War I, all of the deaths, civilian and military, added up to roughly 22 million people. That's in all the years of World War I. And we have this whole day where we pause to name those names and to remember those places. What about this? In 2020, there were just over 8 million deaths worldwide from cancer. 
in 2020, 1.8 million people died of the coronavirus. And look what we've done to our society in response to that. All totaled to this day, there have been 5,183,824, plus a few more now, deaths from COVID. 5 million in a year and a half. Since January 1, 2021, 37 million, 107,115. And the clock keeps ticking. Globally, according to Worldometer statistics, and by the way, these statistics on Worldometer come from the World Health Organization. This is not a number that has been provided for us by some crazy right-wing pro-life group that just wants to inflate the numbers. This comes from the World Health Organization. It comes from the United Nations. If there's any error in this number, it's on the low side. And it's also worth noting that this number reflects only the number of surgical abortions performed in clinics and hospitals, and only those surgical abortions that were reported. Anyone who got the Plan B pill, the morning after pill, that's not counted here. So this number is dramatically on the low side. And globally, in 2020, the leading cause of death, number one cause of death on planet Earth, greater than all deaths from cancer, malaria, HIV, AIDS, smoking, alcohol, and traffic accidents combined, the number one cause of death on planet Earth was the abortion of children. If that's too overwhelming, because sometimes you get these really huge numbers, and it's, I think my head's going to explode. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Just when I needed it. That's probably about five to 6,000 just since we started this service this morning. Now, that's not a real-time clock. Obviously, someone's going to call that to my attention. It's not. It's based on the numbers from the last several years, averaging that out from day to day, moment to moment. But in this period of time, that we have been worshiping on average somewhere between five and 6,000 children have been massacred. They have been killed. We are all guilty. We have been silent when we ought to have spoken. An old prayer from the Book of Common Prayer says, Lord, forgive me for those things that I said that I ought not to have said and for things that I ought to have said and did not say, well, this is one of them. We've been silent when we should have spoken with clarity. We have settled for political candidates who want to lower our taxes, but some of those same political candidates are pretty sure that killing babies is okay. We have turned and walked away when we heard someone talking about fetal cell lines. That's awkward. Or what we've, when we've been shown Pictures, for instance, documented. In, in the last several months, I'd be surprised if you haven't heard the expression humanized mice somewhere. 
One aspect of that is when they take the scalps of murdered children and they graft them onto rats so they can test and see what the response of that human tissue would be under certain circumstances. This is the science, folks. It's been going on all around us for decades. And we've remained silent. We've closed our eyes because that made us feel squeamish. We've allowed ourselves to be led gently down the wrong road. And when you find yourself going the wrong direction on the wrong road, the most progressive person is the one who does a 180-degree turn and goes back to the right road. We need to hear the Apostle Paul calling us to flee from idolatry. Because at the bottom line, this is not a pro-life sermon. It really isn't. Sounds like it, but it's not. This is a pro-lordship sermon. Because if Jesus Christ is Lord over all, and he is, and if we are called to follow him, and we are, then it is time to turn away from our idols and turn in repentance and faith to the living God. It is time to stop making sacrifices to the little tin gods of prosperity, comfort, and safety. And to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. It's time to put on the armor of God and to make a stand. To make a stand against the devil, against the world, and even against our own flesh. Wielding that sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And proclaiming to all of these adversaries that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord over our lives. He is Lord of the nations, including the nation of Canada. He is Lord over the province of Alberta and the town of High River. He is Lord over our families. He is Lord over our sexuality. He is Lord over our birth control practices. He is Lord over our finances. He is Lord over all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to acknowledge our Savior Jesus Christ as Lord and to go out from this place following wherever he may lead, willing to say the things that need to be said with grace, but also, Lord, with truth, calling sinners to come to him in faith and repentance, to be born of your spirit and to be part of this great kingdom that you are establishing as it comes in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.